Hey everybody, welcome back to the 31st episode of Taps and Patience. I am AJ with Design the Everything, here with Harrison of Precision Ingenuity. How you doing, Harrison? Doing good, AJ. How are you doing this evening? Uh, I'm not sick now, like I was last week. That's always a plus. Yep. I feel like I've been sick more this year than I have, like, in the rest of my life. Uh, were you sick months during the uh, years that shall not be named? COVID. What? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Sorry, that went straight over my head. <laughs> I don't think I ever got COVID. If I did, it wasn't bad. I don't remember. But like when I, um, fairly early into me going full time, I had like the flu or something that turned into pneumonia. And that had me down for like a month. And then over this last week, I was down for... I, I was basically in bed like all of Monday, all of Tuesday, and then Wednesday I was up and moving, but like super, super, super lethargic. And I would like go work for twenty minutes, and then like go sit down for twenty minutes, and then go work for twenty minutes. And I ended up like going to bed at eight or something. And then mm -hmm. on, even on Thursday, I wasn't feeling nauseous or anything, but I think because I hadn't really eaten for three days, I was kind of recovering from that, you know, no caffeine in those three days and not very much food. And then, so then on Thursday I was, you know, probably a little bit dehydrated and needed to catch yeah. back up on eating. And then, yeah. So that goes. was like basically a whole week of less productivity. <laughs> yeah, it's, it happens. So you're just you're just catching up on everyone. If you didn't get sick during the the years that should not be named, which yeah. you should now get. <laughs> the, then you're the just playing catch up. To, <laughs> yeah. Playing catch up to all the different COVID's thirty seven million variants that have come out. Yes. <laughs> since the, all right. Well, good to see you back on your feet. So how are you feeling about everything? Feeling like everything's going good? Well, we can talk about the Kickstarter because I don't think we've addressed that at all. Yeah. But Today was one of those days, like you have those days where you just think that you're a terrible machinist because everything's going poorly and like mm -hmm. you're everything's a struggle. Today was not one of those days for me. Today oh, was really? finally one of those days where just like everything I touched was perfect. Those are those are awesome days. Yes. <laughs> it was like, oh, sometimes sometimes I am good at this stuff. Mm hmm. So so what all are you working on that just went smoothly? Do you want to talk about that at all? So. We probably need to get into some of the history more on this. But Scott and I are starting up another line of products. We have better keychains. Mm -hmm. And now we're moving on, or not moving on to, but we're branching out into another one, which we don't really have a name for yet. Like we don't have all of the marketing and everything put together. We mm -hmm. have been sarcastically calling it better desks because we have better keychains. Okay. And so now we're doing better desks. And that may just stick because that's what we've been calling it. Cool. But the. The premise behind Better Desks is, and it's not limited to just stuff for your desk, but we are making things for your workplace that makes your day just a little bit more efficient. Gotcha. Kind of utilizing some of those lean principles that we've been you know, learning about and applying to the shop. And these will be fairly simple products. Our first one that we're working on is a pen rest. It's just a place to put your pen with mm -hmm. the theory being that if your pen has a home, uh, you'll know exactly where it is. It's not going to get lost and you know, you'll save 10 seconds at a time, you know, 20 mm -hmm. times a day or whatever. So this was the most recent one off of the machine and I am super happy with it. I'm showing it right now on the camera to the, the video mm -hmm. viewers. The fun part about this part is there is exactly one flat surface on the entire pen rest. It is on the bottom. That's cool. None of the sides are flat. The top is not flat. It's all, it's all radiused. The, That's sweet. The kind of the design style around better desks is based on like a, um, like a forged part or like a, a pressed part. Mm -hmm. So this is basically a cylinder if you were to take a form tool and then just squish it down to make this gotcha. little groove on the top. So all of the, the edges are, are radiused. 
That's um, cool. And everything else we're working on on this product line is going to be uh, similar. There's also, it's going to be super hard to see on camera, but there is a texture where the pen mm. rests. That'd and nice. again, going back to the theory of better desks and like how I implement lean and stuff is that when my theory is that when something is missing, it needs to be obvious that something is missing. Mm-hmm. So like whenever I'm setting up my labels, like if I'm giving something a home, like a screwdriver. So in my toolbox, I have homes for all of my screwdrivers and underneath where the screwdriver sits, it sets the name of the, it, the label is underneath the, where the screwdriver would be sitting. And mm-hmm. so when you remove that screwdriver, there's not only a hole that should have a screwdriver in it. You also see the name and you cover up that label when you put the screwdriver in, which tells you the right things there and what's missing, you know, what's missing. And so on all the better desk stuff, whenever there is something missing, like the pen in this pen rest, we're going to have that crosshatch pattern just to say, hey, something needs to be here. You need to go find it. So I could I could think of so many products that would be awesome for your desk now that you've got me thinking yeah. about this. <laughs> There's a lot. I have a list of like six here that are all pretty quick, easy ones that we want to get started with. Awesome. Do you want to do you want to? Do you want to divulge any of those or do you want me to just state my ideas or just so leave it off? The pen rest it, we're starting with because it's small and simple and we could do it with the stock we have on hand. Mm-hmm. We're going to do a little sticky note station. Yep. That's coming up. We have a, a three by five card station, mm-hmm. a, a phone stand, mm-hmm. some sort of coaster, probably something super simple. Mm-hmm. And then the big things that we're going to do is a monitor riser, like a little platform that you'll sit your monitor on, I a like laptop riser, which will probably be basically exactly the same, but different proportions. And then uh, the thing that I'm really excited for and will probably be the flagship is a monitor stand, like a like something you would clamp to your desk and... Oh, you know, yeah. Like a Visa monitor mount. Because I spent like five years designing monitor mounts for my, with my old job or monitor yeah. related items. So like, I'm pretty familiar with the space. If you're going to do that, it'd be really cool at my old job. I, I use my laptop and secondary monitor now, but at my old job, I had two, three monitors set up with mm-hmm. my laptop and I struggled to find a good laptop stand that I could slot my laptop into that would hold it clamshell closed and allow me to plug my USB-C cable into it. And then I wasn't actually using my laptop. It was more of a docking station for my Mm -hmm. whole array. Um, And I always struggled to find a good one because they were either really clean and really flimsy. Like it was really easy to knock the laptop over or they were really bulky and just a pain in the butt to use. Yeah. So you were keeping your laptop closed. You weren't. Yeah. Cause I had three monitors. Okay. So I had three, I had three, three monitors. monitors. Your laptop can hook into three monitors with one USB-C connection. Oh, that's impressive. Okay. Yeah. So the Dell Dell precision workstations that I used at my old job that I, I that they, my whole, my old job that was switching out towers to laptops to get everyone mobile because of COVID and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and we started doing it a little bit before COVID, but um, it was about that around that time. And the idea was before COVID, the idea was if we have these stations set up, um, we had multiple buildings, then uh, designers could go, they could work at the manufacturing facility if they had a project that was going through the shop so they could be right there if a problem occurred to be easy access to the people building the equipment. And then when yep. they're designing heavily, they could go work out at the the secondary facility, which is where they'd spend the majority of their time. And so so the idea and so with that was born the idea of well if we're gonna do that, we need a portable system so everyone can have all their files. Yep. Or if they could take their laptops and work home in the evenings or something like that. And so the idea of having a dock system, which Dell worked out really well um, with their laptops because they could support three monitors. Which, funny enough, we found the limit of how many monitors 
based off pixel density that it could support. Hmm. So Interesting. <laughs> the, the the tech guy who was in charge at the time, he loved 4K monitors. And so he tried to connect three 4K monitors to it. And it could not do that. Okay. It was, that was just too many pixels. Um, but what you could do is you could do one 2K monitor and then two 1080p monitors on either side. And you could you could do two 2Ks and one 1080, I think. Uh, I don't think you could do three 2Ks. I think that was right at the borderline edge. Um, but what was weird, what was weird is that you could have the laptop screen and that one didn't seem to count against your other monitors. So I could have four monitors if I really wanted to, if I opened up my laptop, which was kind of cool. But uh, I typically just relied on the three. And the way we had it is we had like a, a 30 inch main monitor and then two like 24 inch side monitors. And so I would have, I would have SolidWorks opened on the main one. I would have my emails and stuff on one side. And then on the other side, I would have PDFs, File Explorer, everything else random on the other side. Um, and and on, the, on this side, it was Outlook and Internet. So I kind of each one kind of had their setup and it was awesome. I, I do miss that about my old job. <laughs> it was really easy yeah. to get stuff done <laughs> on the computers. So I finally invested in a second monitor setup when Scott came because mm-hmm. I asked him what he needed for his desk and he basically just sent me an Amazon link to like a desk, a monitor and a keyboard. That's all he he asked for. And the monitor he got looks pretty good. And it was like a hundred bucks or something. I was like, I'll get one for myself because I've been I've been working off of just one laptop. Well, one of two laptops, but one laptop mm-hmm. monitor for the last you know couple years. Yeah. And as soon as I hooked this one up, it was like, oh, yeah, I remember why I like two monitors. This is mm-hmm. way better. Yeah. Yeah, I I got spoiled. I got the triple triple monitor treatment at my old job, and it was awesome. And then the nice thing about being close to the uh, the tech guy um, was that at one point I had three thirty inch monitors because nice. we cycled through a lot of engineers and we had a lot of extra monitors. And so I stole two, and I had three thirty inch monitors, and I had this like massive array uh, for a little while until we hired some more people on, and then I had to give them back but for a while i had this really awesome setup i just like wouldn't know what to do with that much monitor oh it was it was amazing i absolutely loved it and now i have i don't remember if it's a 27 inch or 30 inch but i have a i have a big monitor and then i have my laptop and my laptop is such high resolution and so much smaller that i'm always like Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) i feel like i'm getting old because i'm trying to squint and look at it compared to the other one so like i'll have stuff opened on it and then i'll like drag it over to the to the secondary monitor and it's like okay now i can see it and then when i'm done i'll put it back over on the laptop so anyways let's see here what else so that's that's my my big thing that i would say is a, a laptop where we where we started with all this is a laptop holder for uh, USB-C docs because i do feel like in this day and age that's probably becoming more and more prevalent and be and be really cool to have. So what it like what does it look like if you're not using the screen? Cuz I would make one where you could use it still like a laptop. So all the ones that I use they're basically just a U-channel block with a wide base uh, more or less. But they try to be universal. Yeah. And that's the key that no one's has figured out how to crack yet that I've seen yet. I haven't seen anyone who's made a dock that can be adjustable to fit to accommodate any size laptop while still creating a good size fit without feeling like it needs to tip over like there was some clever designs that came out um but they were all really flimsy and i would be lying if i said that none of the laptops that we tried at my old job found their way on the floor because the stands are too flimsy um that happened a couple times and we went through a couple docks and so those laptops might have been an anomaly because of how large they were. But most of them were designed to handle something like an like an iMac or not an iMac, like a, like a MacBook Pro or a MacBook Air, which is really thin and light. And for those, I'm sure it worked great. But for like uh, engineering laptops, they could fit them, but they were so heavy that 
uh, you bump your table at all, and 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 it's just tippy canoe. Um, so, so big base plate, big base plate. Uh, it'd be cool to have a mechanism. The the coolest one that that, that I that I saw, but it was also the most flimsy. But it was a really cool idea. It was a wide base, but when you would stick it into it, it would kind of close until it grabbed onto the laptop. But the problem was, is it was. It was so rubbery and flimsy, and it had such a narrow base that would fall over. It was an awesome idea with a poor execution. And so it'd be really cool to have some kind of a linkage and spring system where when you set it on it, it would bring them in and just and just lock onto it. And then when you went to pull up, it would automatically release. And so it'd be really, I, I feel like it could be pretty simple to design. And it would be almost like an art piece in some ways, yeah. just if you got it to work right. And I've always wanted to design one of those i just hadn't thought about it in a long time until you mentioned this but i was always really upset with all of the stands that i used i will i'll add that to the list because i was thinking about like basically i want a place to here we'll make everyone seasick like this laptop takes up a lot of desk surface area and i like to be Mm -hmm. able to move it up just to have more desk yep yep i have a i have something like that on mine um, before we got uh, heat and cooled air in the shop, it got really hot in the summer last summer, and so we got some risers that had fans on them, mm. and that helped out a lot for the heat. Um, it also made the laptops taller, and so we're using them no matter what now, just because it's nice to have the laptops up. So I like that. I don't know if the fans actually made a difference though; they were pretty chintzy fans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you get it. Just make the surface into a big heat sink. Yeah, maybe. Depends on your cool. laptop design if it would be able to utilize that. I would think most couldn't because they would have uh, rubber feet that they would sit on. Like that's yeah, how most that's, laptops are designed. Yeah, that's how mine is. It's got big rubber feet on it. And so that's why you need some sort of active cooling to make a difference. But so. it, would look, it would look sweet if it was a heat sink. Yeah. Well, that's cool. I would be excited. One of the coolest desk items that I've ever seen um, was I saw someone who did a, a giant revolver cylinder that hold pins mm-hmm. in each that held pins mm. in the in the bolt holes, and it was set up on a on a bearing system so it could rotate around. Um, I think that was a Kickstarter that I saw back several years ago, and it was really cool. So something like that's on our lineup. Uh, it's probably not going to be a revolver cylinder. But yeah. some sort of it probably won't rotate either. But some sort of like pen cup e thing. Yeah, that'd be cool. I, I've I've one of the things that uh, I wanted to do for my students taking my int- uh, intro to CNC class was I wanted to have some them have some have them design something and machine it. And one of the ideas that I had that I'd never played around with was I wanted to come up with different pin single single pin cases. Because you could have like a clamshell that opened up like a book. You could have it open up long ways. You could have it split in half. You could have it hinged out both ways or hinged to the side both ways. Like there's a lot of really unique mechanisms. And I wanted them to try to come up with some unique way to store a pin and then open it up. And I wanted them to use as much design freedom to open it up but still have it be machinable. Because I thought that would be a really cool exercise. That would be fun. So that's cool. Well, I, 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 I'll be rooting for you in that respect. Cause I, I want to see Thank you. what you have. Is the bottom of your pen going to, of your pen stand that you're working on, is that going to have a felt or is that just going to be flat machine bottom? It's going to be cork. So here was okay. the first prototype and you can see there is a cork bottom. Oh yeah. That was my favorite thing about your little stand um, that you did because I got one of your coin stands. I love that felt bottom. It made all the difference in the world. And when you have a laser, that stuff is super easy. Because it just... Just like, cuts it. I just export the the uh, geometry directly from Fusion, stick it in my laser, hit cut. Like, Yeah. That is awesome. So, cool. Well, what else you got going on? So, the other two things, and all of these are, are kind of related... Uh, but the Kickstarter is going on. And in fact, we were funded today, by the way. Ooh, congratulations. A uh, couple hours ago. Let's see. I can hold this up. Yeah, so we were just funded a couple hours ago. 
we are at about eighty eight hundred dollars. That's awesome. I would like to point something out though. So mm-hmm. Scott and I introduced some changes to our campaigns on the fourteenth of April. Mm-hmm. And if you notice on the fourteenth of April, we went from making oh like a hundred to two hundred dollars a day up to like five hundred dollars a day. Dude, that's awesome. So I'm really, really happy about that improvement. And I kind of wish we had, you know, made those changes earlier. You say that, but here's the deal. Had you made those changes earlier, you wouldn't have been able to see their effect maybe as well. That's so, true. so, and because you're planning on doing Kickstarters as a business model, the more insight you can get to what has positive and negative effects on your Kickstarters will benefit you for the next one. And as long as, I almost would plan that as a business strategy where try to make changes to the Kickstarter mid Kickstarter and see if they have a negative or positive mm, effect and incorporate that to your future ones. Kind of like AB yep. testing for like uh, YouTube AB testing for the, uh, the thumbnails, how they do that. Yeah. Uh, I think that data is highly useful um, for Kickstarter. So do you want to know the biggest change we made? And from what I, I can tell makes the biggest difference. I would, I would love to know. We changed the thumbnail. Oh, really? Is that what it was? Let's see if I can show this again here. So this is, well, there's a big play button in the middle of it right here. But this Mm -hmm. is the current thumbnail. Uh And it just shows the product a lot better than our old picture, which let me see if I can find it. Well, it looked kind of like this one here, but it was on concrete. Mm -hmm. And I think I think it just made the product more clear. Is that all you did? So the other thing we did is we added these textured scales, the premium scales. Ooh, I do like those scales a lot. I saw those on Instagram. Those are beautiful. And like maybe they are like people are reading the campaign and they're more interested to buy because of the premium scales. But we really haven't sold that many. So it's probably definitely the video. So I... I think it's mostly the thumbnail here. If we so so, is that thumbnail visible whenever people are clicking on the campaign too? Like, don't 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 they have a? Is that the same image that shows up when people are scrolling? Yes, that's the image that shows up when people are just browsing Kickstarter, and okay. those are the sales that we've seen upticks in. Okay, that makes sense. So, so thumbnails—they're important. That's awesome. And that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Your coins one, I'm, I got your uh, all the projects you've got pulled up here. Your coins are the same way. Your coins yeah, sold it's out. It's almost the f- actually the same. It's almost actually the same uh, thumbnail now that you say it. It's, you know, just a product on kind of a natural background. Yeah. So maybe yeah, that's that, the, the secret. Yeah. What did we do for the not for climbing here? Okay, the not for climbing carabiner, we had this picture. But I think you had a lot more sales from your promotion of it leading up to it. We did. And that that one, you probably had less Kickstarter. Like, the ratio of Kickstarter sales versus people that you brought in is probably skewed a lot more in that one. Can you, can you tell that? Uh, on this one, actually, it was a lot more organic sales. Oh, it was? Oh, okay. Yeah. Though we did have some nice little bumps here, like this one. That was when mm-hmm. we got featured in Core 77. Yeah. Single-handedly give us a couple thousand dollars there. That's awesome. But, yeah. So, anyway, I'm glad those sales are up from what where they were. Um, yeah. It, it, it's funny. The smallest things could be the most important thing on those projects. It's the, it's the small detail stuff that, that pays dividends. And that's something I'm not very good at. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's I'll, why I have Scott. Like, <laughs> yeah. Although if I were to do it today, I would do it completely different than my first Kickstarter. Like my first Kickstarter, we did everything so wrong. We had every single color as a separate pledge for one. For two, they were all single purchase sales at the same price. So it was just a list of all the yes. colors as their own individual deal. That is the worst possible way to do it. Yes. From, and I don't think so, we have okay. any add-ons. 
for anybody who's going to do a Kickstarter in the future, this is how you do it. If you're gonna, if you're going to, if you're doing a campaign that you expect to be smaller, let's say under five thousand dollars, do not have a bunch of color options. Otherwise, things get very complicated. If you are doing a campaign over five thousand dollars, then you're allowed to have color options, but you need to use Backerkit to do your survey. Backerkit costs about five hundred dollars, but they also add like a, a store that goes like when people are doing their survey, they have the ability to buy extra things. And typically that adds about 10% to your scales or your scales, your sales. And that is held true for like many people that I have talked to. They add 10%. And so it costs $500 to do backer kit. So if you're doing $5,000, you break even on it basically. Um, That's why if you go more than $5,000, do backer kit. If you're under $5,000, don't do backer kit. That makes sense. Backerkit has all of the tools to do product variations, uh, and it makes it really easy. Kickstarter does not have those built in very well. So if you're doing the larger campaign where you expect more than $5,000 in sales, then you just like take care of all the variations in Backerkit, and all of your rewards are like buy one carabiner, buy two carabiners, buy three carabiners. And if you give people the options to more buy to buy more carabiners, they will buy or buy more of your product. They will buy more of your product. So yeah, yeah, I'm gonna have to do another Kickstarter at some point in the future. I did. It was a good experience. I just have a sour taste with how many I have left over, (laughs) and that was that's totally our fault. uh, Inexperience for the win, Um, but it was it was very beneficial, and I think it's helped us in the long run. If you exclude time investment, the total cost to launch the Not For Climbing Carabiner was in the neighborhood of like $350. And like 200 of those dollars were literally taps um, because we had our <laughs> breaking taps issues. I guess yeah. that's, I, I never include the uh, tapping head in my math there. So maybe it was like $400, but yeah. Yeah, we but just we- needed a couple prototypes and to do product photography and we're saving all the production until we know how many we sell. Yeah. And see, we went around this backwards in the sense that we bought all the material and all of the tooling and built all the fixtures before Kickstarter. That way we could handle what we thought was going to be a massive influx of so- of sales that never happened. So like, and our Kickstarter while nice was also horrible. Like it was a good Kickstarter. It had a lot of photos. It had a lot of, like the the description was good, the video was meh, um, but the the sales side of it was horrible, um, just because, like I said, we just had a horrible way of like showing our product, um, and we limited ourselves doing the make one hundred as well. Like I, like you can sell more than a hundred, and I should have had that as a separate, or maybe just the first hundred sales, um, like I really should have made it have more. Uh, like have the first hundred be special in some way for sure, but not limited to a hundred. Did you sell all one hundred? No, we only made it to forty. So, so not, it doesn't matter not, then if it was. It, it doesn't to matter, but it, it kind of does because we were limiting the amount of options that were available because of it, thinking that would create some sort of scarcity, but it did not. So yeah, on the coin, I wish I had done something to be able to sell more than the 100 because i sold exactly 100 coins and like there were i had a waiting list of people and so i think if i had like made it so that the 100 were like the unique algorithmically generated ones and then all the other ones after that were standardized or something i think i could have sold probably twice as many coins yeah or, or what you would do is you what you could have done at that point is the first 100 are completely 100% randomized. And then the anything beyond that, you have like five patterns and that was your only yeah. selection. Like they would be randomly generated for sure, but you would have to pick from a library of randomly generated ones that were, you know, or you just get one of five designs at random. Like you'd have... They wouldn't be unique, but they would be random. I will say the best thing that came of that coin Kickstarter, mm-hmm. 
20% of the backers who backed the coin backed this Kickstarter, which oh, is really? just like outrageous. I can't believe that 20% of the backers on that campaign backed this one. What percentage of the first keychain are backing this one? Uh, for context. I believe it was in the... I believe it was in the neighborhood of four or five percent of the not for climbing carabiners came to the not so tactical. Oh wow! So twenty percent is pretty massive. It's have you, that's like unheard of. Yeah. Have you had? Have you talked to other people about that to see what they say? No, I would have to ask Fidget Things how his numbers came out because they didn't release the tools to be able to see this data until like literally during the campaign. Oh, okay, and. In, in fact, they keep breaking the tools. Like Kickstarter has them marked as uh, beta. They call it like advanced mm-hmm. analytics and they marked as beta. And they'll like work for a couple of days and then they'll be broken for a couple of days and they'll work for a couple of days. Gotcha. So they're still figuring out all the bugs. They're still figuring it out. But yeah, so I have to ask fidget things. But I, 20% re- like of customer returning to a new product is just unheard of. It's That's awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> That is exciting. Hmm. But, okay, so, excuse me, talking about the Kickstarter a little bit more specifically here. (laughs) Hold on. Oh, sorry, I had to take a drink. So, I'm not sure how much we've talked about this on the podcast, but we expected sales for the the not-so-tactical carabiner to be a lot higher than they were. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, we were figuring we would be about double or triple of where we are now. And from talking to people and you know both customers and just like mentory type people like other experts in the field uh mm-hmm. other experts experts in the field of which I am not one of them we basically came to the conclusion that we just carabinered people out like people mm-hmm. were really excited for the first carabiner cuz it was new and exciting and different mm-hmm. and then like 3 months later we did basically the same product mhm and people were just worn out. And like a lot of the people we talked to, you know, who are normally like we talked to a lot of people who are normally the kind of person that buy almost everything designed that everything makes. Mm-hmm. And they were just like, I already have a carabiner. Why do I need another one? Yeah. And that is where all of our sales went. That makes total sense. Yeah. And that is why Scott and I started working on better desks or whatever we're yeah. going to call it is because... That, like, instead of just, you know, keychain, 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 you know, people only need so many keychains. So Mm -hmm. now we can do better desks in between, you know, kind of alternate and give people a little bit more time to miss us. Yeah. I like it. So that was the idea behind better desks. Dead. I like it. Diversity helps. Get as many products out there as you can, because ultimately... I think the Kickstarter route is awesome, but like I've always said, if you can build up a large product catalog through your Kickstarters, eventually your catalog is going to outweigh Kickstarter. Not that you're going to stop doing Kickstarter, but you won't be stressed out about how every Kickstarter does. Yeah. Now, I do think, and this is like, you need to focus as well. You can't just be making anything and everything. Like, you have to focus. Mm Mm-hmm. The lesson we learned there is uh, you can't be just because you, you need to focus in the on like you need to focus on a problem or a niche. You need to focus on a yeah, you need to focus on a niche in a group of people. You can't focus on the exact same problem. Yeah. Well, I, what I was going to say is you, you might be able to catch lightning in a bottle, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to keep striking in the same location. <laughs> Like it can happen for sure. Like if you, if you do another Kickstarter carabiner campaign two years from now, I think it would do really well because you'd have two years of experience under your belt and you'd be able to bring something to the market and industry that would be a major improvement over what you're doing today. Like I'm, I'm expecting two years from now, you're going to have bigger, better machines and have much better capabilities and be able to design some absolutely amazing things. At least, that's the goal. Always improving. Like if you had the pocket NC's five axis machine to make some wicked sweet carabiners, I mean, you would sell a ton of them. I can, I can promise you that. And so coming back to it, 
like two years from now, three years from now, once you have a bunch of these out out of out in the wild, you'll be able to start going back to the old ones and doing revisions and improvements, and then you can start doing really well. And we do plan on doing some more carabiners, you know, relatively soon, but they're not going to be the exact same design. Like we need yeah. one, yeah, had like in a, had... a shaped one. We need a smaller yeah. one, but yeah, but spaced out appropriately. Yeah. Had you done the S-shaped one, I think you would have done a lot better. Agreed. So. Well, cool. So, let's see here. So, I had some family visit last week. And one thing that happened during that was they toured our shop. And they all, a lot of my family that came and visited, they have big machine shops up in Michigan, in the Michigan area. And to put things in perspective, I toured their facility, oh man, 2008-ish, 2009-ish, somewhere in that range. And he had like five shops that were 40 to 80,000 square foot each. Gosh, okay. And so just massive manufacturing. They make some of, he makes the largest trench diggers in the in the u.s and i think in the world interesting i mean it's it's really cool they are insane and i won't go into all the details on them but if anyone ever wants to look them up it's uh dewind water trenching or dewind trenching i forget the exact name scheme cod for it but it's it's dewind trenching i think i'll look it up but anyways while he was here um uh, viewing our shop dwind one past trenching yeah while he was touring our shop he had a buddy who was uh wanting to get some 1911 hand grips and he wanted like 600 of them so we might be doing that Ooh, yeah that would be good so so i noticed you had some on your instagram yeah which is what i'm working Mm -hmm. on pulling up here uh, is this one there. first one here? Is that just a render? No, that's, no, that's real. it. That's the actual one. That looks like a render. That is it. It's it was it was uh, uh, sandblasted and then seracoded, but it's fully machined out of a solid chunk of aluminum. And so I for really those like of you who, I would say for those of you who can't see, he has a picture of a uh, 1911 on one of their fancy 3D printed stands, and it has a kind of a olive drabby tannish scale that has milled honeycombs on it. Yeah. And it kind of fades out to nothing, which is what I really like the silver or the gold grips do not do justice to the pattern on them. We need to do those in a different color. We did gold cause we thought people might like them for the bling factor, but they do not do justice to what they actually look like. Can you get some contrast in those, uh, Glow spots they to would pop, look, make your engraving pop. They would look amazing in some sort of battle-worn finish. They would yeah. stand out, and it would be amazing. We need to do that. I'm glad you mentioned that. What, what is this logo? That's our... That's our. So we had our original logo, um, but for the gun stuff, we have a separate logo that we designed just for our gun division. And, that's, and we wanted something simple um, for that that didn't really harden back to the machining side. It was more of it's it's kind of that military gun look. Yeah. Um, Why don't but you use still, that for everything? Uh, because we didn't think about it until we got into the gun stuff. I like it more. It's a lot cleaner. Yeah, agreed. So, who knows? We might slowly transition to that one. We've been using both. You got our original one right there. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, I like it. it. It's a lot cleaner. We started out way too complicated. But I think that's Everyone how... Everyone always does. Everyone always does. So you don't know who you are in the beginning, so you get overly complicated to cover all your bases, and then you simplify. Though I would like to point out the design and everything logo has not changed in six years or something. Well, is it your original, though? Yes. Has it not is. changed. Oh, yep. okay. Well... I guess not everyone makes that mistake. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it helps that, you know, Scott was there right at the beginning and did the logo. Some of our our branding stuff 
has and will change more. Uh, like our font and our color have both changed slightly, but mm-hmm. we've been fairly consistent from from day one. Yeah, that's awesome. So anyways, uh, that's pretty much what's been going on. We've been getting a lot more orders from our favorite customer. And what's funny is that when I dropped off some parts last week, they said, oh, we're going to be slow for about two weeks. And so you probably won't see anything from us for about two weeks. I was like, oh, okay. So I went back and was talking with Weston. We're like, oh, well, when we get caught up on their stuff, we're going to go out and hand out a bunch of business cards and all this stuff. And then we got like three quotes from them that same week. I was like, yeah, nothing. Uh Uh-huh. Whatever. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You can say that, but you're still asking me to quote stuff. So, but we'll see. We did a, we had them when we went to at their shop, we told them the size of our machine and they sent us a part and we told them we can only do about 18 inches wide on our machine, but they sent us a part that was about 28 inches long and we could do it because we had the, we had the Saunders fixture plate with the Mm -hmm. Saunders vices and the part was designed in such a way that there was a hole in the very center of the part. And so we could keep that in the machining area and do the first side and then rotate it 180 degrees, go off that center hole and then do the other side. And then after we did that part for them, they started sending us parts that were like 64 inches long. (laughs) (laughs) You have to take out the windows on your enclosure. (laughs) So, yeah. I don't, I mean, I think we can do them. I got to send them a quote for them, but it's like they are testing our limits. Yeah. Which I appreciate. It's definitely, it's driving me to the point where I'm going to have to get bigger equipment for them. If I can keep getting enough work to justify it. Uh, you get they, that, uh, the, the big Haas VS three. Yeah, I would love to. And it was interesting because speaking of machines, I was talking to the guys that, that, so um, a little bit of backstory. We had some people that came and dropped off a bunch of parts for us to laser engrave. It's a, it's a machine shop in the area. They've come to our shop a handful of times um, because they wanted to get a laser for part marking, but they got this really fancy laser that's uh, nicer than ours, um, but it's busted. It arrived messed up. And so then they sh- sent them replacement parts and they were the wrong parts. Then they sent them new replacement parts and it went to the long- wrong location. Oh. And this guy's been on the phone with them. He has done all this stuff and he had parts that were supposed to be going out today, but he had no way to mark them. And so um, on Friday, at the end of Friday, he's like, I'm showing up on Monday, uh, Monday morning and I have a whole bunch of parts that I need marked because they need to be delivered today. And, yep. and it stressed us out. Because he was there first thing, and Weston was running 100 miles an hour today trying to get those done for him. But we got them done, but we were talking to him afterwards about his shop when he came to pick them up. And it's interesting because um, he actually purchased this machine shop from another guy about six to eight months ago. And he's got a mixture of old and new equipment. And he has a bunch of Mazak stuff, and he's switching over to Haas. And I've never heard I've never heard of anyone going from a Mazak down to a Haas because it's usually the other way around. Um, so that was kind of interesting talking to them about that. Hosses make money. Uh, Hosses make money. They do. It's just it's not the progression that you normally hear about. So it was just kind of yeah. interesting to talk to them about that a little bit. So we'll see. I I, I mean, the Haas Haas does make a good machine. Don't get me wrong. I would like to try like a Doosan though. Like I don't know why I have this burning desire to try a Doosan, but I've heard such good things about them um, that I'd like to give it a shot. But I, I would be happy with any kind of larger <laughs> vertical machine. <laughs> yep. So that that reminds me. There was actually one more thing I I did in the last week that I I forgot to mention. I got called in back to my my last job to help him out with some parts. Mm-hmm. They have a, uh, a turret punch that mm-hmm. they have had for years and years and years. It was their first uh, CNC machine. Okay. It to the only way we have to program it right now 
is using a computer that runs Mac OS seven, oh, wow. uh, which is just ancient. And it, it, the, the software is awful and it's super out of date, but that machine runs, you know, like the same three parts and that is all it has done for the last 20 years. And so like, they never need to do new programs for it mm-hmm. and getting new software for it costs like $20,000 for the software plus like $10,000 for a post. So how hard would it be to find a new replacement machine? I think when that machine dies, they'll just do everything on the laser. Okay. But it's like that machine just sits there. It makes money. Like it's old. It's ancient. Yeah. Like the only way you can get programs to it's on a floppy disk. And that was a retrofit from when it used to be a tape drive. But it just runs. It just makes money. It just sits there and you put in a sheet, you hit go, you come back a couple minutes later, you remove the sheet and you put in a new one. And like, it's still relatively fast. It's still relatively accurate. And it just, it just runs. (laughs) So I don't remember who it was that did this. It might've been within tolerance podcast. Um, But have you ever looked into like the screw industry and, and the, the, the fasteners as they get made? I have not. I know a little bit about like the screw machines, but. So the screw machines They've been using the same machines to make screws since like the like early 1940s or something. And almost all of those machines that are making screws today were built in that era and they haven't really made any new ones. Like at least that's what it sounds like. And it's really cool because I've gone down the YouTube rabbit hole and there are so many of those old machines that are still running today. And I mean, like I was watching one video of this guy who was in Japan one man show and he made like 4 million screws a day on like 30 of these old machines that are out putting screws like crazy. And he's been doing it for like, who knows, 300 years or something. I don't know. Guy look old, but, but it was just cool to see these machines that he's been running by himself for so many years and they're all old. And he's just been chugging along. Yeah. Cam operated. uh, Yeah. All mechanical. The cam operated machines like that are just so I could be mesmerized watching those all day just because like the mechanical simplicity, but yet the complicated parts that they're able to get out of them. It's kind of like the uh, automatons. If you've ever looked into those things. Mm -hmm. Yep. Those things are it's just it's mind boggling what we were able to do before computers came around to the prominence they are today. I, I need to bug Tom of Frog Pod fame. He at some point picked up a, I don't remember if it was like a brown and sharp, like cam driven screw machine. And I need to find like if he's turned it on at all or if he still has it or I bet if he has it, I bet it hasn't been turned on, but it's a really cool machine. Yeah, that would be cool. Hmm. I don't know what I would make on it, but I would love to make something. Yeah. <laughs> Well, probably whatever it was designed to make. If it's that old, it's probably yeah. designed around a single part. <laughs> so. No, there. It was like the predecessor to a Swiss machine. Oh, okay. Except just cam operated, so it may have even been sliding headstock. I don't remember. So going to the complete opposite end of of ancient machines that are still running are really cool. Have you? Do you watch Titans of CNC? I do not. Okay. You need to look up one of their videos. Have you seen the eight turret Swiss slave? I've seen those before. I saw them like IMTS. Those things are insane. Yeah, they're nuts. Like I was watching some of it. I, I, I've i seen them before, but I'd never really paid too much attention to them. But Titan's got one and I saw it and it, his thumbnail caught my attention. Uh, and so I started watching it and trying to figure out how the, what those things were. And it is just the amount of parts you can get through them is mind boggling because basically your only limitation is, and in, in that particular one that they had, it was an eight, eight separate turrets. I forget how it was like a 40 axis machine or something. I forget. It was insane how many axes it had, but basically you start in at op one and every station is a different feature. And so instead of breaking it down by operations, you can break it down by tool 
And so whatever single tool path is the longest is the limitation of how fast you can make your parts because the thing's constantly rotating. And so, you know, if a part would normally take you, say, 10 minutes, but you have one feature that takes, it's your longest runtime out of everything, and it's less than eight. So, like, say you had seven operations and your longest operation was um, two minutes, you could get it down to where you're getting a part every two minutes on that one machine. So it's just that's how insane. that's how the old screw machines worked like the old like acme machines like they would mm-hmm. have you know eight stations or whatever and cam driven yeah yeah Nuts. so it's kind of like a modern version of that yeah that's exactly what it is so it's just cool highly productive so but yeah the only other thing i had on my list was advertising and we're Ooh. trying to get we're, we're trying to learn how to do advertising, like traditional paid advertising. And by traditional, I mean social media advertising, which I consider traditional advertising. I did a little bit of experimenting with it. And like I ran, I ran an ad for like two days and spent a total of like $30. But now that we have a Shopify website, we can get all of the fancy integration stuff that we couldn't with Etsy. And... We spent $30. We didn't actually get any sales on our website with that $30, but we did have someone back our Kickstarter. So we spent $30. We made $44, which is actually still losing money for us because, you know, we have to make the thing. But I mean, like for a fairly half-hearted, just like just testing, I mean, one to or like a 1.5 ROI, not not too bad. Yeah. But now that Scott is here, we need to, uh, like, this is the reason Scott is here. Get your advertising up a level. And he has on his wall over there, oh, there's no way that's readable. But it says, meta ads, 1.75 return on spending by 422. That's Scott's goal, Uh, which is basically the end of the week, Uh, which might be a little bit optimistic because it takes an ad like 24 hours or 36 hours to really get going. So... Maybe I, maybe 422 was a, a bad date to set because that doesn't give them very long. But if we can hit 1.75 ROI on ads, we're, depending on what sells, we're either just barely making money or just barely losing money. So, and then we can slowly start, you know, make that, you know, if we get to a 2.0 ROI, basically we're just printing money at that point. Yeah. So. That makes sense. That's depending cool. on what sells. Yeah. So have you have you sat down and figured out like you did a lot of your Caribbean a lot of carabiners on your first one? Yes. Have you looked at and I don't mean me, but I mean other machine shops um, outside of me that could mass produce these and how cheap they could do them at certain volumes? Have you ever done that? I have not. If we wanted to send them off to China and get them EDM'd, they'd probably be pretty cheap. But I have not looked into it. You should. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, it depends. Because it depends on what you're selling. Are you selling it as something that you guys are making? Or are you selling it as your design? Because... I think it kind of depends. It's a little bit of both. The thing I don't like about going... Like, okay, so... Yes, there's probably a U.S. shop like you that could make these for us. Probably one that could even make them cheaper. But doing that forces you into holding inventories and longer restock cycles. And like mm-hmm. it just slows everything down and makes it much more expensive. I don't mean I don't mean for like once you start selling them continuously. I just mean for like a Kickstarter, like where you have a large quantity of a one shot. So you can focus in on your next one. The Kickstarter, I think, is where it would make the most sense. Even if we were selling, you know, 20 carabiners a week regularly, I think it would still make far more sense for us to make them ourselves. Mm -hmm. The other thing right now is like we we want all the margins that we can get on them. And I would much rather, you know, pay myself or pay Scott to be the one standing there by the machine Mm -hmm. uh, than someone else. But I don't know. There is a world where that will happen eventually. But right now, I'm just all about keeping inventories down and supply chain short. 
No, you're good. I just wanted to be devil's advocate and hear your thoughts on it. Yeah. So I, you know, originally was working more towards outsourcing more and more and more, but that was before I got Scott in and my mind has been changing on that. Oh, and now I'm leaning more the route of, you know, a highly productive shop with, you know, me running it basically with eventually with help. Cause it's really magical right now. I can like, I spent all day by the machine today and stuff still got done. Like (laughs) packages shipped themselves. It's it's amazing when you have a second person. Yeah. It makes a huge difference. Like I could never do this if I didn't have Weston um, helping me out. Like it, it just, it wouldn't get done. I'm too disorganized and he does so much on his own that I don't have to think about that is just incredible. It, it's awesome. Yeah. Like today so he ran I, the laser all day while I was running the machines. So, and shipped out like 12 packages from Etsy or whatever happened over the weekend. So yep. we're the first couple of weeks of Scott being here were weird. Cause we were all focused on the Kickstarter and like not really in the, the flow of things, mm-hmm. but now that things have settled down some, it it's starting to work how I had imagined it where, you know, Scott is doing his marketing thing. I am doing my machining thing. You know, mm-hmm. I focus more on the business side. Scott can work on some of the creative side and like, it's, now, it's been really nice. Has, does Scott come up with the designs of the products and then you make them or are you coming up with the designs and Scott's just helping you market them? So the actual CAD files that I am starting to machine, I have all done. Um, Scott has done some concept art of ones that I haven't really started on yet. Um, but I will just use his concept art. I will remodel them and then go from there. Yeah. But it's it's nice to have someone who can do really good concept art. Yeah. Like I, could, I can make stuff look like a concept art pretty good. I cannot come up with concept art on my own. I'm horrible at that. So... Yeah. And the over time, Scott will probably play more and more of a design role. Uh, I like, you know, when Scott and I had started a long time ago, I had was really just like I had, a you know, an engineering degree or I was working on my engineering degree at the time. I was learning about making things and like Scott had a much, much, much better eye for design than I did. And that's where like the Spire pen came from. That was mm-hmm. all Scott's design, really. Now I have designed a bunch more products and Mm -hmm. like I have that, that practice that he does not have yet. And it's like, he has the style, but not kind of a lot of the execution practice. Mm -hmm. So I think as he gets better at practicing the execution, he'll be doing more of the product design. But in the meantime, it'll probably be still like, I'll be using some of his ideas, but I'll do the final details Mm-hmm. especially just because like i've used fusion a whole lot more and like like designing this thing is not straightforward with no straight sides on it um mm-hmm. like just that 3d modeling is tough so like that like with some of the concept art he's done not knowing how to model it has really slowed him down mm-hmm. but he knows what he wants like functionally and aesthetically and then it just needs someone else to finish it up. Yeah. Makes sense. My air compressor is running. I was wondering what that was. <laughs> it's still going. <laughs> oh, man. Oh. Should well. we uh, wrap up? Yeah, I think so. I don't think I got too much more to, to talk about. Just excited that I'm I'm consistently busy. And I don't know if I mentioned this before, but I think I mentioned this last week, but we're pretty close to hitting our our monthly goals for the first time ever. Woohoo! So I'm excited about that, and I'm hoping that trend continues. So um, hopefully, um, I think next week we'll start getting paid again, because <laughs> we've been doing a lot of work, <laughs> and it's everything's on a net 30. So yep. hopefully money will start rolling again uh, next week. Cause I think that's when the, the first of the net thirties are that we've been doing a lot of work on are going to start to hit. And then I'm hoping I can keep getting stuff 
on the front end. So I'm always looking out 30 days and going, okay, I'm, I got, it's healthy and we're doing good. So anyways, just that update. Super excited. So I guess I'll just take us out. So um, everyone who's been listening, I appreciate it. We appreciate it. Please uh, tell all your friends about us. The three or four of you that we have now. <laughs> we might be up to four finally. Those of you who have been messaging me on Instagram and that listen to the podcast, I'm sure uh, Design Everything gets some of those too. I appreciate it. And uh, this is Harrison with Precision Ingenuity signing out with AJ from Design the Everything. Fun fact, this song is called Cry When It's Over, which is one of the reasons I chose it. I thought it was a good sign out song. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>